So, I mean, if anybody had told me that this medical legal firm is going to be the door for you to get your dream come true, I'm going to be like, how? You are listening to You Are a Lawyer. I'm Kyla Denangel, a 2015 law school graduate. This podcast was created to share the successes of law school graduates in non-traditional careers or with exciting hobbies. In episode 67, I am speaking with a storyteller, author, and lawyer. This guest helps women in media and law develop strong voices and stable careers. Based in Abuja, Nigeria, today's guest is Esther Edom. All right, so welcome to the podcast, Esther. Thank you for having me. I do appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for bringing the LLB degree to my attention, which is the Bachelor of Law. A little bit about yourself and your educational background. Okay, I currently help young women in law and in media to develop strong voices, solid careers, and stable personal lives. I come from a law background in terms of my education. So I have an LLB, and that is an undergraduate law degree from the University of Kent in Canterbury in the UK. And I have a postgraduate certificate in food law from a different university, the De Montfort University in Leicester in the UK. Now, for anyone who's listening from America or Canada, when I say I have an LLB, that doesn't mean I'm a lawyer. So in the UK, you do an LLB, which is the regular undergraduate law degree. Usually it'll take three years, but if you are doing law with something else, English law and French law, meaning that they had to go spend their third year in France. So obviously their degree was four years and then English law and German law, they had to go to Germany for one year and so four years. But just generally, if it's uh, what I call a straight law degree, no detours or anything, that would take you three years right? When you do that and you've decided by the end that you do want to become a lawyer, if you're still in the UK, what will happen is you would have decided if you want to be a barrister or a solicitor. They are not the same thing. A barrister is the one that you see wearing the wig, the white wig and the black coat. So they actually go to a different kind of law school from solicitors. If someone who wants to become a barrister, there are very specific law schools. That's what we then call law school in the UK. And what they take is, I I can't remember what it's called now, but back then when I was still in uni, they call it the bar vocational course. And then when they finish that and all that, then they are called to the bar. On the other side, for those who want to become solicitors, they have to take what is called the legal practice course. Just like the bar vocational course, it's for one year, but it's more focused on what a solicitor would actually be doing. So that's what they're learning. And whereas the ones for uh, the bar vocational course, they're more obviously focused on what a barrister would be doing, uh, going up in front of judges, learning how to argue more and all that, whereas solicitors don't do that. So say you had a problem that you needed a lawyer to deal with. The normal thing that they would do is you have to see a solicitor who would then instruct the barrister. So if you watch legal dramas from the UK, you will often see somebody like the barrister who stands and does the arguing. But from time to time, he or she will refer to somebody sitting behind him. That person is not a clerk. That person is actually a solicitor. 
So that's, yeah, that's pretty much how it goes. I'm originally Nigerian and I relocated to Nigeria and the legal system in Nigeria is similar in some ways to what's obtainable in the UK, but it's also very different. So for somebody who has gone and studied in the UK, the case law and some of the acts and all that, we have something similar in Nigeria, but Nigeria has other sources of law. There's like six other different sources of law. So they would have to learn that in law school as well. But in Nigeria, we don't have barristers separate from solicitors. A barrister is a solicitor. So we have a what we call a fused legal system in Nigeria. And you have to go to law school. And then when you complete it and you pass, then you're called to the bar. But we'll call you a barrister in Nigeria, but you're also a solicitor. So someone can hire you straight away and then you see i mean you can go in theory you can go all the way to the supreme court but in practice i mean nobody's really going to hire somebody who's fresh out of law school to represent them at the supreme court but in theory it's possible but yeah that's pretty much how it is so ours is a little bit different in fact in the u.s it's a lot more complicated because you would go to your university or uni which is your four years and then you can go to three years of law school and then regardless of graduating from law school, you have to take an exam for two or three days. If you don't pass that exam, everything you study pretty much is worth nothing because you- Yeah, that's that's the thing. Like at the end of law school, you have to take an exam and pass the exam. If you don't pass the exam, then you're not a lawyer, but you still have your LLB from university, if that makes sense. Yeah. It does make sense. It's frustrating, especially over here, because we take exams every semester of the three years of school. But still, if you don't pass that big exam at the very end, it's almost for nothing. In the UK, different universities do different things. So I do have a qualifying law degree from Kent in Canterbury because there were two campuses. But somebody else from, I don't know, maybe... King's College London, you would find that while we did the same seven because we had to, they might have done like media law or something as one of their electives. And you'd be surprised to find out I don't know anything about it because I didn't do it. I didn't have to do it. Right. But yeah, it depends on the university that you go to. You can have wildly varying experiences from other people, yet you still come out with the same LLB degree. Yeah, it sounds like it. So what was the advantage or incentive of going to school in the UK versus getting your degree in Nigeria? Nigeria is a jungle. I'm sorry. I did try to get uh, into Nigerian universities. It just did not work out because there's so much corruption and my results kept getting seized and just weird things going on. It, it was horrendous. It was traumatic. I spent five years after graduating from high school. So we call it secondary school here, or we did at the time before I got into university. So I was 21 when I got to the UK then I had to do uh, what was called a foundation program because our like a high school diploma is not sufficient to get us into a UK university so I had to do like a bridging type of thing and for me it was the university uh, foundation program in law past that then I got into an actual university to then do my law degree. Yeah, we do have some exams like that, like the SAT exam, standardized testing that you would take after you get out of high school, just so that you could get incentives or get like scholarships into your university. So 
Yeah, that's what I'm saying. The ones that are available in Nigeria, they're not sufficient. Uh, Like the UK institutions don't don't respect them. (laughs) So that's just it. Yeah. Yeah. And even America, and from what I've heard, American institutions as well don't and Canadian institutions don't. So anybody who's going straight from Nigeria to studying the US or even Canada, it's just not possible. They're going to have to take more exams and whatever those countries' institutions want. Okay. You graduated at 16 from secondary school and then Mm -hmm. you came out law school at 21. Is that common or do a lot of people go directly from secondary school? A lot of people go directly from secondary school to university, but you have to take certain exams, right? And if you don't pass or something goes wrong with the exam, like I said, the corruption is really bad. You can write an exam, refuse to cheat. The invigilator who is annoyed that you didn't cheat because you didn't pay them to let you cheat will mark your paper. And so they'll withhold it and you're never going to see it again. Like you, when results come out, like the examining body will just be like, oh, sorry, um, we don't know what happened. Or they'll just say something. And what are you going to do? You're going to have to wait till the next year because okay. who are you going to talk to? You can't really sue anybody because what are you going to prove? B, the justice system in Nigeria, at best, it's very slow. At worst, it's corrupt. So a lot of people just look for options outside. Okay. Yeah. In your questionnaire, you said that you woke up one day after finishing your exams and you were like, I don't even want to practice. No, (laughs) it was very scary because what happened was I had gone to the UK and actually loved being a student in the UK, loved my course and just the entire university experience. When I was in my first year, I thought I wanted to do family law. I wanted to become a family lawyer. And although I had my reservations about actually becoming a barrister, when you want to become a barrister, after you've actually been to law school, there's this training program that you're supposed to go through called a pupillage. And you do that with chambers. So you're not in school anymore. And sometimes you do it when you're still in school, but that actually counts towards your being able to be a barrister. But when I was in uni, I I mean, I didn't want to wait until I got there before deciding you know, this is not what I want to do. So I arranged something called a mini pupillage with a small set of chambers in Canterbury, which is where I was at uni. And that was in family law. So I, I did it with a family law set. I was three days, three very horrendous days. And that just made me realize, nope, this is not what I want to do with my life. I listened to one of the guests that you had on, the uh, one who's in housing law. I think her name is Rebecca Larson. Yes. And when she talked about how she was 21 or so and did something in family law, like a placement or whatever, mm-hmm. and she was traumatized, I that resonated so much with me because I, I remember that I did mine in January 2006 and there was this couple there, like a divorced couple. They had been fighting since 1983. Bear in mind, I did this in 2006 and, you know, the man hadn't remarried, but he had a new partner and the woman, you could just tell that she was so angry and so bitter. And, and I just went, and <laughs> this is not, this is not my pattern life. I don't want to do this. I can't. And so at that point I was like, okay, let's see corporate law. And I liked that. I wanted to do corporate law and figured I would be a corporate law solicitor. And uh, in time I would become a solicitor advocate so that I can have rights of advocacy in court yeah. only to get to the morning literally the morning of my final exam I woke up and it just hit me 
no, I don't want to do this. This is not what I want to do with my life. Which for me was very scary because I actually already had a place at law school to become a solicitor. So I had a conditional offer because they do that sometimes where you don't have a full offer. They know you're still in school. So they're like, okay, if you make so-and-so great and yeah, you can come in and you can have your place in law school. And I remember waking up that morning and going, no, I don't, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to go uh, on to law school. And I was horrified and really scared because it's one thing to know what you don't want to do. And it's another thing to not know what you actually want to do. And that was the situation that I was in. I had to just grip my teeth, of course, write that exam because, are you kidding? I'm not going to not get my degree because of one paper. And to smile my way through graduation, knowing fully well that I was not going to do this. Now, a really funny thing happened around graduation. Not not funny, haha, just sad, because that was when the recession really hit the UK. And so what had happened was that even my classmates who were planning to go to law school and some actually had training contracts, which is the solicitor's equivalent of a mini pupillage for a barrister, they had them with these law firms. And that was pretty much a guaranteed job after law school, right? Because the recession was so bad, some of the law firms, they started to downsize, they closed departments, or the law firms just closed completely. It was really bad. But like there's this part of London that's called the city. So it's the financial district. And that's where some of the law firms, including the ones they call the big five, it was so bad. People were literally walking up to the tops of the buildings and they just throw themselves down. So they would come in 2008. Yes. Yeah. It was horrible. And so a lot of us, and it, it wasn't just people from my university that had a problem with, oh my God, I don't know what I'm going to do now. It was, I mean, law schools all over the country, or rather law departments all over the country had graduated people and even law schools that suddenly did not have anywhere to go. And I remember thinking, okay, even if I just wanted to grip my teeth and just say, okay, let me just do this. I can't even, I couldn't do it because there was literally no law firm that was going to accept me or anything like that. And what I did was, I was like, okay, let me just get a job, any job that I can get and just figure out my life later. And so I wound up at a small medical legal firm just outside of London. And I started working there as an administrative assistant because that was what I could find at the time. And I've always written, even as a child, like I've just always written fiction and stories. But I come from, I mean, things have changed now in Nigeria, but back then, I want to become a writer was not something that anybody said you have only three options when it comes to a career. You're either becoming a doctor, lawyer, or an engineer. Like, there's, there's nothing else. <laughs> like, nothing else exists. And so that thought of, oh, I want to become a writer was just not something that I thought I could pursue. Plus, I had already tried to get published a number of times in the UK, and I'd always gotten rejected. So on some level, I just thought, okay, that just means I'm really not good enough. But I had got into a friendship with somebody that I thought was a friend just after my first year at university I met her through somebody else who was her friend and uh, long story short this person had then traveled to the United States to study producing and directing at the New York Film Academy but by the time I had wound up at this medical legal firm she had relocated to Nigeria and I did not know somehow in that five-year pseudo-friendship 
I had shared with her six different pieces of my writing. This chick had relocated to Nigeria with my work, with the intention of using them to make a name and money for herself. Yes, she studied producing and directing, but can't produce and direct something that doesn't exist. And she had no writing talent. Now, like I said before, the Nigerian legal system is, at best, it's very slow. At worst, it's corrupt. She actually said to me, listen, if you don't sign these things over to me, I will use them anyway. And there's nothing you can do. If you try to say anything, I'll lie. Nigerians are too stupid. They're not going to know the truth anyway. And by the way, if you try to sue me, I will drag you through Nigerian courts for at least five years. I'm going to make my name and my money and you're just going to waste money and you're going to lose. And I went, wow, okay, this is ridiculous. I'm not doing that. And so I, at that point, all I knew was that she's in Nigeria. I knew she was in Abuja, but Abuja is a really big place. I didn't know where she was. I didn't know anything. And so I called up a friend of mine. We went to primary school together and I, I don't even know why I called him. I said, listen, I'm in trouble. I've done this and can you help me? And he said, look, it's just writing. It's not that big a deal. Just ignore her. And I said, no, she's been mean and nasty. And, and he got really angry and he said, uh, just leave it with me. I'll deal with it. I don't know what happened. Two weeks later, she contacts me saying, oh, I don't know why you had to get people involved. Like she was really scared. And I was like, what, what did you do to her? And he's like, nope, I'm never telling you. He said, you came to me with a problem. I, I sorted it. And he's like, that is how it is between you and me. Anything you come to me with, I will deal with it. Till today, that's how he is. He is now my husband. So he's <laughs> like, I know. So if he tells me, yeah, it's sorted. I'm, it's sorted, I'm not, yeah. he's like, focus on what is actually your problem. You had a problem. It's fixed. Now be happy. Okay. But honestly, so <laughs> those stories, that's your brain on paper. Those are your experiences, your words. So I'm so glad it got yeah. yeah. And so because I was so distraught when all of this was going on, I, I was literally losing weight and sure. looking really sad. And so my boss came like, what's going on? It, you know, the sun is out finally and you look at how you're dressed. And, and so I had to tell her and she went, okay, I know that you don't think your writing is good enough and you're still trying to figure stuff out. But she said, look, I've read your writing. And the truth is, if somebody was willing to fake a friendship with you for five years to access your writing, that is a sign that you're really good at this. You just need to try again. Hey there, I want to take a minute to thank Journey in Practice, a season five friend of the podcast. Journey in Practice offers the Heart Center Lawyers Membership, a community of law students, grads, and lawyers who participate in self-care activities to improve their legal journey and practice. Use code podcast for a special rate when enrolling in the Heart Center Lawyers Membership. Use the link in the show notes. And what I did not know was that she had actually had a conversation with one of the firm's clients about me. So our clients were psychiatrists. So in the UK, when somebody commits a crime, uh, just depending on the circumstances and their mental state, they, if they're found guilty, they can either go to prison or go, or they'll be sectioned. So they'll go to a mental ward. 
but sometimes they don't want to stay there forever. They want to be let out. And so the court needs to have a hearing about whether they are okay to be let back out into society. And so their solicitor would then contact the psychiatrist to talk to the person who was convicted and all that. And so that's where we came in because our psychiatrists were the ones who would do that for solicitors from all over. And so the psychiatrist would record and sometimes type out his reports and send it to us for us to edit it and send it to the solicitor who hired him. And I remember that this particular psychiatrist, when I had looked at his report, like I remember looking at it and thinking, "Mm, okay, edit this. And I said, change this word. I think it reads better here and there. I noticed that he was a Nigerian and I knew that if he was a psychiatrist, he had to be older than me. And I thought, oh my gosh, I hope he doesn't get offended Mm -hmm. because some people might, that I've done more than editing. I've literally changed some words and all that. So I sent it to the solicitor and put a copy on file like we do. He read it and he called my boss and asked her, did you hire somebody new? And my boss was like, why? And he said, whomever touched this psychiatric report hasn't done my work before. Who is the person? Everything I was afraid he was going to be angry about, he was really impressed by. He and my boss had talked and my boss had told him that I wanted to be a writer one day and that she had actually seen my blog at the time. And I did not know that he actually had a publishing company. So he, I know, right? (laughs) He and my boss, they made a pact and he said, okay, because I didn't meet her outside, I met her in your office and I want to respect you. I will not approach her. However, if she approaches me without you getting involved, I will make sure that my company publishes her book. So of course, is this, okay, how am I going to know? Because, you know, he put an ad in a free newspaper. There was this free newspaper that they used to distribute around London. I don't know if they still do it now. And I remember picking up that paper. And the week I didn't go to work because I wasn't feeling very well, I was looking through this paper to pass time, saw this ad for if you want to publish a book. I called, had this conversation. And I remember thinking, I don't know why this man's voice sounds a bit familiar. But until the end of the conversation, I went, I'm so sorry. I don't know your name. I didn't ask. And he starts laughing. And I was like, oh my gosh, what have I done? And then he says, it's me. I'm Dr. So-and-so. You've been doing my work in the office. That's how you know me. And then he tells me the story of how he's been watching me for months. And he said, the only reason I noticed you and I noticed you for a good reason was because of how diligently you did my work. Uh, So he just had to send it through to the general office email box and hope that I would be the one who would pick it up because we were three right and of course no psychiatrist is going to request a particular person but he's like I've known about you for months and this is the funny thing all that time I had been so sad and depressed and like oh my gosh when am I even going to get an opportunity to publish my book it's going to be expensive so I mean if anybody had told me that this medical legal firm is going to be the door for you to get your dream come true I'm going to be like how And so that happened. And then a year or so later, I was in a McDonald's on the 30th of 
December. And I remember I sat at a table and these two guys come in and they're trying to talk to me, not in a bad way. And somehow they're like, oh, you're a writer. Hey, this is this person's card. Do you want to call this person? She's a radio presenter. And I think she would like the topic of your book because the first book that I wrote, Forever There For You, uh, there's a theme of domestic violence. And I think, yeah, okay, fine. The following year, I call her up. We have a chat. I go to the radio station to do the interview. It's pre-recorded. And then the day that it goes out, immediately after it airs, she calls me and says, what did you think? I went, well, I don't know. <laughs> it sounded like me. I don't know what, yeah. what was I supposed to think. And she said, see, here's the thing. A retired BBC correspondent listened and he thinks that you were on the wrong side of the table. He thinks you have an interviewer's voice. He wanted to know more about you. He was shocked that you don't have any media training. She's like, do you want to come back into the station? Let's do another interview. This is all free publicity. Yeah. I'm like, I don't have anything else to do. So yeah, okay. So I do that. But I don't know that she's told her bosses. And so on this second occasion, I'm listening in another room. And they're like, yeah, that's true. She has an interview as well. And they come in and they make me an offer right on air. I've never been that dumbfounded in my life. They're like, do you want your own show? I'm like, how is this even happening to me? I was like, but I don't have any training. They're like, it's not rocket science. Like, you know, this particular interviewer, she'll guide you and all that. And so I did a series on domestic violence on radio and it was well received. And I had lovely guests who, who wanted to be a part of the show and also help their profiles. And then I decided, I just knew it was time for me to return to Nigeria. And so I felt like, okay, that door for radio, you know, it was fun. It's closed. That's okay. It was fun while it lasted. It's not like it was the original plan. And for me, coming back to Nigeria, I just thought, okay, I'm going to be a writer. That's it. But got back and found out that some, some of the things that I wanted to do, the structures were not there. The structures that I had taken for granted in the United Kingdom just didn't exist in Nigeria. The mindset something was different. And I was like, come on, are you guys kidding me? This is ridiculous. So I'm trying to do that. I incorporate my own company. I get a writing gig for a reality television show, which really freaked me out because I was like, that was my confirmation that there's nothing unscripted on television, which yeah. was something else. And I am thinking, okay, we're, I'm going to do this, going to deal with this. And then I get a message from the radio presenter who mentored me when I was in the UK. And she said, uh, do you want to become a radio presenter? And I went, you know, I've returned to Nigeria, right? And she said, yes. The thing is, I've moved radio stations. I've spoken to my new boss about you. He's looked you up online and he thinks you would be a good fit. I'm like, I am in Nigeria. And she said, yeah, there's WhatsApp. There's something we can do by the station. And yeah. before I knew what was happening... I had become one of the first international radio presenters that this new radio station has had. And so it went on from there. And I remember thinking, man, this is insane. Like, who does this happen to? Then I got fired <laughs> from oh no, the, writing, the writing job. Yeah. Lagos is to the Nigerian entertainment industry what LA okay. is to, yeah. And the thing is, I don't like Lagos. 
I actually live in Abuja, which is more quiet and more sane. I hate Lagos, but because I was told this is where you have to go if this is what you want, I went there. Yeah. And one morning, like five o'clock in the morning, my husband calls and I'm like, I don't know what it is. I haven't slept. He's like, yeah, I can feel it. I can feel that something is wrong. I just didn't know what was going on. And he's like, I actually feel ill. And I know I haven't done anything. I shouldn't. So I know it's you. What's going on? And I'm like, I don't know what it is, this job. And he's like, listen, if you work yourself to the bone and you die, they are going to replace you in the time that it takes them to say, hey, let's observe a one minute silence for her. What we did not know when we had that conversation was I did not need to die to be replaced. My replacement had already been chosen because I think I, it was a couple of days later, I got a call from a project manager and they were like, we have to let you go. You're getting fired. I'm like, whoa, what did I do? Because in my head, that's why you get fired. You did something wrong. Right. And he said, no, you don't sound Nigerian enough. You sound too British. I was like, how is that even a reason to fire someone? You saw my portfolio before they hired me. They saw me before I signed on. And so what I chose to do was focus on what I still had instead of what had gone. And I remember at that time I had started a blogazine. So it was of the marriage between a blog and a magazine because in the UK, I had some magazine editing and writing experience. And so I thought, okay, nobody's doing this in Nigeria right now. I want to do this. Some months after getting fired from that writing job, I got notified that I had been nominated for a BEFTA in the UK. And I was like, wait, what? Because... The BEFTA, I don't know what the status is now, but it was like the Black Oscars. It was a huge deal. And I'd hoped, I mean, you do hope at some point that somebody might nominate you and you might win. But if I nearly had a heart attack, I was like, wait, what? Why? And someone went, yeah, you're nominated for Blog of the Year, which was a shock. And then less than a month later, I turned on my phone And I have all these messages saying, congratulations, you won. And this is something, and I tell people, some of the time you're so focused, so obsessed with that particular, that one thing that you think, oh, it's this thing, this is the way. You're so obsessed with that thing, so highly strong about that thing. You don't look around to basically smell the roses or the coffee. And you miss out on a lot. Now, I found out that it's not just the media thing, but it's also, I just couldn't leave law behind in that way. I mean, I'm not going to practice. I have no desire to, but I found myself helping lawyers and, and even some of their clients just with public perception and just saying, do this, don't do that. This is the way it looks. I mean, Nigeria doesn't have jury trials, which is a really good thing. So it's not like anything I say is going to taint a potential jury pool. But some battles are won and lost in court and some in a court of public opinion. And for instance, a housing lawyer is not a criminal lawyer. And even two criminal lawyers, they are criminal lawyers and then they are criminal lawyers. And so it depends on how you've you branded yourself that will help with positioning so you know who you're talking to and how you're talking to in a way that that they understand and gets you the result that you're hoping for so that in a massive nutshell (laughs) is my story (laughs) good though because honestly it sounds like you are advocating for others even though you didn't become a formal solicitor advocate 
wow yeah. actually yeah i never thought about it that way that's your new tagline <laughs> <laughs> because you took all of the training that you received and you're like well if i can't find it i'm going to just create it that is a form of advocacy absolutely i feel like there's something that i say which is that your privilege is not always about you sometimes it's because of somebody else that you got into a particular position and try not to forget that because having to know certain things that some people don't and some people know things that i don't and i'm like my as well do this thing that resonates with me and helps people in very specific ways. Yeah, and that's how I feel as well. I love the fact that you are in Abuja, listening to the podcast, learning from other people, and you were like, hey, let me see if I can be on a podcast too and share with people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, your story is going to resonate and other people are going to be like, why am I not doing everything I can do? Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, and I think one of the really good things that studying in the UK did for me, where I would not just keep setting questions to myself, I would go out and do something about them. So I know that there are people in Nigeria who might be in a position that I was, but that thing of go online and look for podcasts as a way of possibly looking for people who might need what you have. That hasn't occurred to them yet. Yeah. And it's not necessarily because they don't have internet connectivities. So for me, it's that thing of, okay, you've seen that this is possible. So try and replicate it on things that I can actually do. And so I'm like, yeah, just do it. Yeah. And your story is really motivating me because, I mean, I've seen on like Twitter and stuff where people are like, oh, even your enemies are watching. You never know who's watching. But yeah. you have a positive story where people are watching, where you edited the therapist, the counselor's paperwork, and he was like, no, she has a gift. You know, you have all of these really great stories where it's like, if you do the work consistently and with a good heart and the right motives, you never know what can happen. And that is awesome. I know that there are people who've watched for negative reasons. I'm like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. do do you, <laughs> do your job, do you. I'm not going to bother about you unless you actually become a problem. And thankfully, I actually have a husband who is like, leave my wife alone. Yeah. (laughs) So Esther, as a part of your coaching and consulting with others, you actually Mm. are teaching them how to say no, because you said it was important for you to learn how to say no to managers and agents and all those. Yeah, absolutely. I grew up in a culture where saying no was just, especially to an authority figure, is just not a dumb thing. And so getting to the UK where, first of all, I was allowed to, and even permitted to question things and question people, even those in authority, that was such a breath of fresh air for me. It took me a while to come into my own because I remember that just before I relocated to Nigeria, I had these pictures taken for media stuff. And the person who took the photos, she is used to doing a magazine shots and She's worked in Paris and worked for Parisian magazines and also in the UK as well. And she did my makeup so heavily, much more heavily than I would. I just, I just don't wear that amount of makeup. And she put me in a dress and jewelry that, I mean, the dress I would wear, but that jewelry I would never wear and did my hair in a way that I would never do. And I remember I felt very uncomfortable, but I didn't say anything. And I felt she's doing me a favor. She's this huge person and nobody abused me sexually or financially or anything on set or afterwards. And I felt respected in other ways. And so I didn't say anything, meaning that those were the pictures that went out regarding me. Right. 
what happened is that those pictures actually could have gotten me in a bit of trouble because obviously those pictures were the ones that I used for interviews and and promo stuff. And for some of those promo stuff that actually secured me physical meetings, every time I went into a meeting, the client would do a double take, like, are you the same person? And I noticed much later, those pictures made me look a lot older. And that's why those clients were doing that double take. And then when I finally agreed to marry him and he went to tell his extended family, because that's how we do it in Nigeria. And they asked for my pictures and they saw those pictures and they were like, how old is she? Yeah. And they were like, are you sure she is the age she told you she is? Because this person does not look like the age that you're saying. And what saved me is he knows, he definitely knows my age because we were in the same class and the same class from kindergarten up until primary five. So just before we went to secondary school. And so they even went back to look for my secondary school mates and ask questions discreetly because I went to a boarding school. So of course the, my secondary school mates would know my age and they were like, okay, we don't know why she looks like this, but we just wanted to be sure that she is the right person and she hasn't lied about her age or anything like that you know and so for me just knowing that okay when you're uncomfortable with something say no just say no I'm not always going to qualify it I'm not going to explain it because if you say yes and you go and anything happens people are going to be like why didn't you say no you know and I have said no to a number of interviews that I did not feel were were going to be a good fit for me in terms of branding. And I tell people, just say no. Nothing's going to happen. I mean, you don't have to be rude. If I mean, if you, if you don't have to be rude, then don't be rude. Just say no and move on. Yeah, and women are doing that all day long, rationalizing. The person wasn't that rude. They just kind of bumped me. But it's like, we really do that all the time when we try to think Absolutely. about, should I make noise about this? Should I make a scene? And so are you still writing your blog? No, that one came to an end. I started a new one. I mean, I try to not hold on too tightly to certain things. If the time for that is done, then it's done. But I do coach people on starting blogs and making them profitable and all that. So, yeah. I feel like you probably wouldn't take too long away from writing anything, right? Because most writers, we have to get it out. We got to put it somewhere, so... Yeah, absolutely. I do have to write. I find that I write, apart from multicultural fiction, which I write as Choma Nani, I also write scripts and screenplays as well that I am working on for hopefully potentially producing for people who don't think that I'm not Nigerian enough. So there. (laughs) Well, let me tell you, do all of the stuff and make sure you keep me updated. Esther, is there anything else that you would say to the audience about not limiting their experience or all the things that they could do? Yeah, uh, the first thing that I would say is don't be afraid to ask questions. The second thing I would say is don't be afraid to start where you are. And the third thing, this is the one thing I would have told my younger self, learn to recognize people, things and situations for what they are, not what your ego or emotion would prefer and treat them accordingly. Yes. I love that. Even in a bulleted list, just like a writer. (laughs) (laughs) And for anyone who might want me to coach them, whether it's articulating their vision for a career that they, they want in law or building a personal brand, helping them communicate with their ideal client, they can go to my website, which is estherettim.org 
forward slash links, they'll find all the information that they need. Excellent. And I'll make sure to put that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Esther. I appreciate it. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Bye. Uh Bye. Thank you for listening to You Are a Lawyer. New episodes are released every Thursday. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and tell a friend to listen to the podcast. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Bye.